We're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Joshua. And so if you would turn to Joshua chapter 4. Joshua chapter 4. And let's uh, start by reading this entire chapter together. And remember as you read that this is God's inspired and inerrant word. Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the Lord, before the ark of the Lord your God, into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded, and they took up twelve stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priests, bearing the Ark of the Covenant, had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priests, bearing the Ark, stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over the ark of the Lord, and the priests passed over before the Jordan, or before the people, the sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them, about 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, Come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, 
as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, when he dried up for us until which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. And let me pray and ask his blessing upon it now. Our God, we know your word in Scripture is living and active sharper than a two-edged sword, that it pierces our souls, that it judges the intention, the thoughts and intention of our hearts. And we hunger for that, Lord. We know that that can be painful because sometimes wrong thinking is confronted, wrong desires, sin in our life, so that we have to repent. But Lord, how precious is that, to be confronted with your truth, not only wounded by the sword of your word, but healed by it as well, that we might be restored and instructed in paths of righteousness. So Lord, please minister in all these ways to us this morning through your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. What makes for a good marriage over time? Well, there are many things to say in that regard. But Dale Ralph Davis has helpfully pointed out that one key factor is memory. He says, in marriage, the real threat may not be infidelity, but simply a slow process of forgetting and a gradual failure to remember the preciousness of the other person, end quote. Did you know that same principle applies to our relationship with Christ as believers? In the letter that he delivered to that church in Ephesus that's recorded for us in Revelation chapter 2, the risen Lord rebuked the believers in that church saying this, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. And do the works you did at first. Do you see, the Ephesian Christians had forgotten the relationship that they once had with their Lord. And their love for him had grown cold as a result. So one key to maintaining a vibrant, healthy relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is to remember. To remember who he is. And what he has done for us throughout our lives. Knowing this, the Lord has always sought to provide his covenant people with mechanisms that were designed to help them keep their memory of him fresh. And the story that we've come to in Joshua 4 is one of many examples of this fact. Now, in order to see this, I want to just walk with you again through this story, and then I'm going to draw out its main message and talk about how it applies to our lives today after we get through the story. But first, let's walk through this story of Joshua chapter 4 again. Now, the first thing you need to remember is that Joshua 3 and 4 are really like part 1 and 2 of the same story. So before diving into Joshua 4, 
we really have to take a moment to recall what happened in Joshua 3. In Joshua 3, you remember that the Israelites went to the edge of the Jordan River and the Lord instructed Joshua to have the priests carry the Ark of the Covenant into the river before the people. And as soon as the feet of the priests touched the water on the edge of the Jordan, you remember, the Lord caused the river to stop flowing. So the priests stood still in the middle of the Jordan, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and the entire nation of Israel was enabled to walk across the riverbed on dry ground. So it was an incredible miracle, which was intended to reassure the Israelites, of course, that Yahweh, the one who sat enthroned upon the Ark of the Covenant there in the middle of the Jordan River, the living God, it says, the Lord of all the earth, it says, was among them, and that he would fulfill his purpose as they moved forward into Canaan to drive out the inhabitants of the land that they, his people, might possess it instead. Joshua 4 picks up right there where Joshua 3 left off. Okay, so chapter 3 ended in verse 17 by saying, quote, the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Well, here, chapter 4 begins, verses 1 through 3, by saying this, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Now let me just backtrack a second. In chapter 3, the last chapter, Joshua had instructed the people in verse 12. He'd said, Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. But that's all that it said in chapter 3. Just stop there. It didn't explain uh, what these twelve men were supposed to do. In fact, you may have noticed, if you were really keen last week, that I actually just skipped right over that verse in my exposition of chapter 3. And I didn't say anything about it because I knew that it was going to be explained here in chapter 4. And that's what we see right here in the first three verses of chapter 4. The Lord instructed Joshua to take 12 men whom he had selected already back in chapter 3, verse 12, one from each tribe, and then have each of them pick up a stone from the place in the Jordan riverbed where the priests had been standing carrying the ark. And after picking up the 12 stones, these 12 men were then to carry those stones on their shoulder to the place where they were going to camp for the first time inside the promised land of Canaan. Now in the next verse, verse 5, if you look at the text, Joshua then, having received this instruction from the Lord, turn around and gave these instructions to the Israelites. So you see him say, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, speaking to the twelve men, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. 
I just want to stop here for one second. And it's worth pointing out um, the emphasis upon unity in these instructions. There were to be 12 men. Why? Because there were 12 tribes of Israel. And the 12 men were to be one man from each of the 12 tribes. And the 12 men were to pick up 12 stones, which would then represent the 12 tribes of Israel. You see, the Lord wanted the entire nation to participate in this act. Because the miracle, which the 12 stones were to remind them of, had been performed on behalf of the entire nation of Israel. This is why it is so important for all the tribes to enter into the land together. Do you remember that there were two and a half tribes who had asked to inherit some of the land that they had conquered on the east side of the Jordan? Remember that land that they had took from Sihon and Og, kings of the Amorites? They thought that land would be good, and they asked to inherit that. And we saw that the Lord had allowed them to do that, But as we saw back in chapter 1, verses 12 and 15, he had required that their warriors go across with the rest of Israel to participate all together in the conquest of Canaan before they returned back across the Jordan to their own land. Now, all of this had to do with the unity of Israel. They were one covenant people of God. They had come out of Egypt together. And now they would enter Canaan together 40 years later. And the importance of Israel's unity is reflected in the Lord's instructions for 12 men from 12 tribes to take 12 stones in this chapter. I think it's important for us as Christians to remember the unity of the church as well. Even as we rightly distinguish ourselves from other Christians, on the basis of certain doctrinal and practical distinctives, we must also remember that, just like Israel, every true Christian is part of the one new covenant community of God's people. You remember how Paul so famously put this in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He says, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. And even though our different doctrinal convictions regarding what the word teaches on certain matters of faith and practice that may make it necessary for us to worship in different churches. Yet the real unity that we have as members of the one body of Christ together, believing in the same gospel, serving the same Lord, receiving the same baptism, that real unity that we have as members of Christ's body should make us then humble and gracious and loving toward other true Christians in other true churches. The unity, you see, of God's covenant people in Christ, it's important to God. 
We see it in this text. It was important to him. It's important to him no less in the church of Jesus Christ. And so it should be important to us as well. And I think it behooves us to just ask ourselves the question, how important is the unity of the body of Christ to me, to you? In verse 5, Joshua instructed the 12 men from the 12 tribes to pick up the 12 stones from the place where the priests had stood carrying the ark in the middle of the Jordan's dry riverbed. And then they were to bring them to the place where Israel would camp on their first night. And then we see in verses 6 and 7 that Joshua went on to tell them why they were doing this. So what is this all about, these 12 stones? Well, he says this, that this may be a sign to you. When your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. To put it simply, this pile of stones from the riverbed of the Jordan set up west of the river in a place, as we shall see, called Gilgal, was intended to stand as a perpetual reminder to the nation of Israel of what God had done on this day recorded here in Joshua 3 and 4. Every time the Israelites walking by looked at those rocks for generations to come, they were to remember God had cut off the waters of the Jordan so that Israel could pass over on dry ground. These very rocks were taken from the dry riverbed and set here to remind us of that fact. So in verses 1 through 3, the Lord instructed Joshua to have 12 men from 12 tribes pick up 12 stones from the middle of the riverbed to set up a memorial to God and his parting of the Jordan River. And they were to set this memorial up at their first campsite. Then in verses 4 through 7, Joshua passed these instructions on to the people as we saw. And now in verses 8 through 10, the people did everything that God had commanded them to do through Joshua. In fact, look there at verses 8 through 10 again. And let me just emphasize this. It says, And the people of Israel did just as Joshua had commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan in the place where the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And there they are to this day. For the priests bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. Just a quick note here. There has been some debate about how to understand the Hebrew text behind verse 9. Did you notice that verse? The English Standard Version translates it this way. And Joshua set up 12 stones 
in the midst of the Jordan. The NIV translates it a little differently. It says, Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan. The Hebrew is a little bit ambiguous as to which of those two translations is correct. If the NIV is correct, well then, nothing to see here. It's just simply reiterating where the stones of this memorial had originally come from, the middle of the Jordan. But if the English Standard Version is correct there, then verse 9 seems to indicate that Joshua actually set up a second pile of 12 stones in the Jordan riverbed to mark the spot where the priests had stood carrying the Ark of the Covenant and that that memorial would be in addition to the 12 stones that the 12 men carried out of the Jordan and erected at their first campsite in Canaan. So, if you think about it, a second stone memorial right in the Jordan Riverbed would be quite striking, wouldn't it? I mean, you could actually look out at the river at that point and probably see the pile of stones sticking up above the level of the water. And you could remember that when you saw that, that is where the priests had stood when God cut off the waters of this great river so that Israel could pass over in the days of Joshua. But, going back to verses 8 and 10, the main emphasis of these verses, however you interpret verse 9, it's upon the obedience of the Israelites to the command of the Lord through Joshua. It's mentioned repeatedly in those verses. Verses, Verse 8, the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded. Again, at the end of verse 8, says, just as the Lord told Joshua. That's what they did. Again, verse 10, everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. You get the point, right? Okay, all right. Whoever wrote this book, we get the point. Joshua and the Israelites did everything the Lord commanded. Perfectly obeyed him. Indeed, it's interesting if you think about it. The book of Joshua is one of the few books in the Old Testament where you see the nation of Israel obeying God most of the time. We know there are instances of disobedience, and of course those end up being disastrous for the future of the nation. But for the most part, when you read the book of Joshua, they pretty much did what the Lord commanded under Joshua's leadership. And The result of Israel's obedience is that God blessed them and he granted them success in their conquest of Canaan. And this is no surprise, is it? Because this is what he had told them he would do in Deuteronomy 28 through 29. I mean, these these are the terms of the old covenant in a sense. You remember the blessings and the curses? If you obey my commands, I will bless you with these blessings. If you disobey my commands, I will curse you with these curses, right? But you know, this isn't actually just an old covenant thing. It reflects a principle that is true in one sense in the new covenant as well. Now, Christians, of course, we are not under the old covenant like the nation of Israel was. We are under the new covenant established by Jesus Christ through his death and resurrection, right? He held up the cup at the Last Supper. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. And under the new covenant, Christ, 
our covenant head, has actually fulfilled the terms of the covenant for us. So that under the new covenant, our relationship with God depends on the perfect obedience of Christ unto death, not our own obedience. And thank goodness for that. That's good news, right? Yet, as his new covenant people, God does reiterate some callings that he gave to his old covenant people. He had said to them, be holy as I am holy. And that calling is reiterated to us as the church in 1 Peter chapter 1. We too are called by Jesus. If you love me, obey my commandments. So we are called to obey God just as the nation of Israel was called to obey God. Only under the new covenant, he has made our hearts obedient, right? Romans chapter 6 says that he has made us obedient from the heart to the things that have been taught to us by Jesus and the apostles. How has he done that? Oh, through that miracle of regeneration, through the washing of regeneration by the Spirit. And when we obey God, we should also recognize it pleases God when we obey him. And when we obey him, it leads to blessings in this life, much like it did for the nation of Israel, as we see in the book of Joshua. So think of Jesus' words in John eleven twenty eight. Remember when that woman raised her voice and said, Blessed is the woman who gave birth to you. And he said, No. Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Or consider James chapter 1, verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So the emphasis upon, this emphasis upon the obedience of Joshua in Israel in chapter 4 should actually trigger a reminder in our minds that that simple fact that, yes, obeying God now by the power of the Spirit not to earn our right standing with God, but as an overflow of this new identity that we have in Him, out of our love for Him and gratitude to Him, that actually leads to blessing in life. And on the flip side of it, disobedience to God's Word displeases our Heavenly Father and leads to various consequences in life. doesn't mean that He doesn't love us anymore or that He casts us off. He still loves us, but when we disobey him, it's not pleasing to him. And he knows that it leads to consequences. That's why he chastises us when we disobey, to bring us onto the path of life. So, for instance, when you husbands dishonor your wife, the Lord says he'll turn a deaf ear to your prayers. 1 Peter 3, 7, right? When you harbor bitterness in your heart towards someone, well, Matthew six twelve, you're going to have a hard time praying that the Lord would forgive you of your sins until you forgive your brother his sins. Being harsh and unreasonable is going to damage your relationship with your children. That's what Paul seems to indicate in Ephesians 6, 4. Stealing may land you in jail. Adultery may ruin your marriage. And on and on. So whereas obeying God leads to blessings in life, well, as the old King James version of Proverbs thirteen fifteen put it, the way of the transgressor is hard. And this provides us with one, not the only, but one 
valid motivation to obey God. That we might please him and experience his blessings in this life. Now, getting back to the story in Joshua 4, we see that after the 12 men from the 12 tribes pick up the 12 stones from the place where the priest stood in the middle of the Jordan River and carried them across in obedience to God's command through Joshua. Well, you look at verses 11 through 14, and you see that, interestingly, these verses then circle back around. And they describe the whole event of Israel's crossing once again in sort of a big picture way. So look at verse 11. There it says, The people passed over in haste. And when all the people had finished passing over, the ark of the Lord and the priests passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh passed over, armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua to the sight, in the sight of all Israel, and they stood in awe of him, just as they had stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. Several points in the narrative, you wonder, wait, it says they passed over, but I thought they already passed over. Well, that's because the text is circling back around, and it's looking at the same event from different angles. And this angle is supposed to look at it in a way that just paints this magnificent picture, right? The entire nation of Israel, millions of men, women, and children, and livestock passed over in haste, it said. And I don't think that means that they were worried that the water might come down on them. I think it's just a way of saying they did it quickly because it went smoothly. There was no incidents. And at their head, it describes warriors from the two and a half tribes who were going to inherit the land on the other side of the Jordan, going before them, fulfilling their promise to do this. And then finally... It says that once everyone else was safely across, the priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant passed over as well. Giving you this picture of the Lord himself enthroned upon the Ark coming behind his people like a rear guard. And then we're told that when all was said and done, verse 14 says, The Lord, Yahweh, exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him as they had revered Moses throughout his life. Now, the reason that this event caused the people of Israel to stand in awe of Joshua, just as they had stood in awe of Moses, seems to be because of the greatness of the miracle and how it left Israel amazed. And it demonstrated to them, ah, yes, Yahweh, the Lord, is now with Joshua, just as he was with Moses. It's interesting, this point, I think, is emphasized in verses 15 through 18, where the text circles back around one more time to describe in particular that very last stage of the crossing in a little bit greater detail. So there we read, this is verses 15 through 18, it says, And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priests bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priests bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up on the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. Now, once again, I mentioned this before. Sometimes 
the writers of the Old Testament use the literary version of slow motion. That is, the text zooms in and slows down to show you what happens at a particular moment. Uh, and the drama is ramped up as a result, right? And so here, what it slows down and zooms in upon is, once again, the feet of those priests carrying the Ark of the Covenant. And it zooms in on the moment that their feet stepped out of the riverbed onto the west bank of the Jordan. Because the Lord, it appears, had released the water, which had been cut off 18 miles north by that city called Adam. And and it came rushing back, rushing back, and the timing was perfect so that just as they lifted their feet out, the water rush back into its place to overflow its banks once again. Now you can imagine the dramatic effect that that would have upon the nation of Israel as they watched this unfold. They probably gasped. They probably cried out in amazement at the way that uh, miraculously this riverbed filled up with water at the precise moment that the Ark of the Covenant emerged out of the riverbed. So it's obvious now to them, the Lord, Yahweh, the living God, he has done this. And it confirms to Israel, Yahweh was leading them now through Joshua in the same way that he had led them through the Red Sea through Moses. By the way, verse 14 is yet another reminder to us that it is God who raises up leaders of his people like Joshua. Do you see it there that the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel so that they stood in awe of him as they had Moses? You know, the Lord is the one who prepares leaders. The Lord is the one who raises leaders up. The Lord is the one who works through leaders. And by the way, what makes a leader in God's covenant community great Unlike in the world, what makes, for instance, a pastor great in the church is ultimately their faithfulness to God. You know, it's interesting, Joshua didn't really do anything here. I mean, at least Moses got to use the staff and like, you know, put the staff forward and then God parted the Red Sea, so it looked like he had a part to play. But here... All Joshua is doing is just relaying instructions and calling the people to obey God's instructions. But that's what a great leader looks like, right? To tell people what God has said in the Scripture and then lead them to believe it and to obey it. And he's to do that both by his own teaching the Word and also by his example of obedience. Not perfect, In other words, if you think about a great leader in the church, he's just an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd, whose job it is to lead God's people in God's presence on God's behalf, much like you see Joshua doing in this text. And the greatest leaders are those who understand and accept that. Just an under-shepherd, just telling you what God said, leading you to do it rather than becoming puffed up with their own performance and beginning with show, 
That was Barney's downfall every time. All you had to do was flatter him, and he'd be like, yeah. Start sticking out his lower lip. In the church of God, we just recognize. The greatest leaders recognize their role and embrace it and accept it. Paul put it well, 2 Corinthians 4, 5, he says, For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. There it is. Well, the chapter ends in verses 19 through 24 with an account of how Joshua and the Israelites followed through on this commission to set up the 12 stones as a memorial to the Lord's miraculous parting of the Jordan. If you look at those verses, 19 through 24, there it says, The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. In those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal, and he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord, your God, dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So here we see, first of all, that the place where the stones were set up as a memorial is named Gilgal. And Gilgal actually became an important religious site for Israel going forward in their history. It is interesting that if you look at a concordance, there is one mention of Gilgal previously to this, but it may be that that was sort of retrospectively that it actually got its name at this point in history. And it's interesting that the name Gilgal means circle. It, It could be that it took its name from this memorial that was set up. Perhaps the stone, 12 stones, were sort of set in a circle and it became known as Gilgal. We can't be sure, but it's possible. We're also told that the day that the Israelites set up camp in the promised land. You see it? The 10th day of the first month. Now, if you were to put that into a search engine of biblical text, you'd find there's another place. Back in the Old Testament law, it said on the 10th day of the first month, Israel was to choose a lamb to sacrifice on the Passover, which would occur three days later. And that set the table for the explanation of what these memorial stones were supposed to remind the Israelites of in verses 21 through 24. And there it says that Israel was to explain to their children that these stones reminded them of how God had dried up the Jordan so the Israelites could pass through it, just as he had dried up the Red Sea so the Israelites could pass through it during the Exodus, which, of course, the Passover ritual commemorates. And then finally, having explained what the memorial stones meant, Joshua explained there how Israel was to respond when they remembered what these stones represented. And first of all, we're told that when the nations of the world remembered the parting of the Red Sea or end the Jordan, they were to know that the hand of the Lord, Yahweh, Israel's God, is mighty 
So it was to testify and cause people to know the power, the might of Israel's God, of Yahweh. And when the people of God remembered it, they were to, quote, fear the Lord forever. In other words, remembering God's mighty works on their behalf, such as the parting of the Jordan, signified by these 12 stones, that should stir up in the hearts of God's people a kind of reverence and awe which would lead them to a life of acceptable worship. So that's the story, Joshua 4. Now let me just come off of that by talking about what does this mean for us today? I think the main point of this story is surrounds this memorial and the issue of remembrance. It's interesting that you have two places in the story where the significance of the memorial is explained. What were they supposed to remember? So that seems to be right at the center of what this story is all about. And it just seems that the story is about how God wanted Israel to set up this stone memorial to remind them that he had parted the Jordan so they could cross over into the promised land in the days of Joshua. And the Lord seemed to know that remembering his mighty acts on their behalf throughout their generations was going to be vital to them persevering in the fear of the Lord, in their worship of God, in their faithfulness to him. And, and the monument is necessary. Why? Well, because they were so prone to forget, right? So he had them put up a monument so that they would remember every time they saw it. Why? Because we're just prone to forget, right? Have you had something great happen in your life that seems like a distant memory now and you barely think of it anymore? That's who we are. So he knew it was so important to remember, but he knew we're prone to forget. And so he instructed them to erect this monument to this mighty act that he had done on their behalf in the days of Joshua. Now, it's true. We look at as Christians today, the events recorded in Joshua 3 and 4, they're distant from us, right? But the principles that they teach, which I just articulated, well, they remain very relevant to us, don't they? First of all, it's just as important for us as Christians to remember God's mighty acts in history on our behalf. Just as important for us as it was for Israel. It wasn't, isn't it? Except... The primary acts that we must remember at this point in realms of history are no longer the Lord's parting of the Red Sea or the Jordan River, but the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, which, of course, are announced to us now in the gospel. These, in fact, are the mightiest acts of, his, of God in all of human history. They are the very climax of his plan of redemption which he is working out in human history everything he did in fact for his old covenant people prefigured and pointed forward to these acts the acts of Yahweh in the person of Jesus Christ the Messiah why because through his life through his death through his resurrection Jesus the son of God 
has accomplished for us what turned out to be a new and greater exodus event. An exodus not out of the kingdom of Pharaoh, but out of the kingdom of darkness, out of bondage, not physical bondage, but bondage to sin and to death. And he has brought us out into a relationship with himself of a new covenant. He's brought us out into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And he is bringing us into what will be the ultimate promised land for his people. The new heavens and the new earth. You know, the importance of keeping these mightiest acts of God in Jesus Christ central and fresh in our memories. Isn't this something that is emphasized just throughout the New Testament? I think of Paul, how he says, he talks to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians one twenty two, and he gets down to brass tacks and he says, look, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you're like, Paul, I know there was other things you taught. But you see, that's not his point. His point is, look, this is the main thing that I keep central in my mind and that I told you. Or consider how later on in that letter, chapter 15, verses 1 and 3, do you remember he said, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you which you received, in which you now stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he told them what the gospel was, that it was the message of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, testified to by the witness of the apostles who saw him alive again in the body. Or I think of his exhortation to Timothy that we just looked at in our study of 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.8, he says, remember? Remember Jesus Christ, Timothy, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached to you in my gospel. Or finally, I think of Hebrews 12.1 and 2, where the author tells us to run with endurance the race that is set before us and where we to fix our gaze, looking unto Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Remember the gospel. Remember God's mighty acts in Christ, in history, on your behalf. Keep it central in your mind. You see, you cannot possibly live a healthy Christian life, a life of a healthy fear of the Lord and of loving the Lord as you ought without continually remembering the mighty acts of redemption that he has accomplished for you in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the gospel message in which these mighty acts are announced to us, that has to remain fixed in your memory as Paul calls it in 1 Corinthians 15, as a matter of first importance, if you are going to remain faithful to God throughout your life. Because it is the memory of what God has done for you that's going to keep you from losing your, the love you have for him at first. Right? It's that memory of the mighty acts of God in Christ which inflames our heart with a love for him and fuels our Fear of the Lord, our devotion to Him. As soon as you forget 
the person and work of Jesus Christ, believer. As, as soon as it begins to recede in your mind and take a back seat, what's going to flood in? Well, other things. The worries and cares and pleasures of this world, which Jesus says choke out our faith like thorns. And we'll begin fearing man more than God. You know, what do you do if even as I say those things, you think to yourself and you're like, you know what? That's me. I've forgotten. It's no longer at the forefront of my mind. What do I do? Well, the Apostle James speaks to Christians who had fallen into unfaithfulness, who had begun indulging the lusts of the flesh. He says in James 4, 4 through 10, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. And then having repented in this way, you must then turn to remember Jesus Christ and the mighty acts of salvation which he has accomplished on your behalf announced in the gospel, and bring them back, not only into your memory, but into the central focus of your heart once again. We should also recognize that knowing how prone we are to forget what the Lord has done for us, even his own death on the cross for our sins, hanging there forsaken in our place, we're prone to forget it. Knowing that, Did you know that Jesus has instituted a memorial designed to keep that event fresh in our memories? For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. See, the Lord's Supper, while it may not be a bare memorial, is designed to be a memorial. As often as we eat that bread and drink the cup together, we are reminded of how our Lord Jesus Christ died on the cross as a willing sacrifice to save us from our sins. So if you have forgotten the person and work of Christ, if that mightiest of all God's acts of salvation has somehow faded into the distant recesses of your mind, it might be in part because you are neglecting the Lord's Supper. It could be that you're just 
not attending on those Sundays and you just haven't taken it very often recently or it could be that you're participating but really improperly. Don't underestimate the importance of that memorial meal. The Lord knows how prone we are to forget (laughs) what he's done for us. That's why, in part, he's given us the Lord's Supper to keep it fresh and central in our heart and mind so that you might love him and fear him as you ought. And you parents, tell your children what that meal is all about. An unbeliever. You know, the Lord has something to say to you through the gospel also. The fact is, we are all God's creatures, but we have rebelled against Him by breaking His commands. If you don't think you have, well, His greatest commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. If you can say that, You've been living your life keeping those commands perfectly. Then your problem is self-deception. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the penalty for our sin, for this rebellion against God, breaking His commands, it is death. The wages of sin is death. And not just physical death, but eternal destruction in hell. But the gospel... That word means good news. The gospel is the announcement of good news of what God, in his great love, in his abundant mercy, has done in history to save guilty sinners like you and me from the power and the penalty of our sin. How? Through the life, death, and resurrection of his Son, Jesus Christ, the God-man. We have broken God's commands. So Jesus came and kept them for us in his perfect life. We have earned the penalty of death for our sins. So he took that penalty for us on the cross. We were dead in our sin, unable to believe and to love God as we ought, and headed to eternal destruction and hell. So Jesus rose from the dead that we might be born again of the Spirit and enjoy eternal life together with Him by faith. And there's nothing that you can do to earn those blessings. Instead, Jesus saves sinners who will renounce any merit in their own good works and simply put their trust in Him to save them by His grace. Paul put it this way in Titus 3.5. He saved us. Not because of works done in us by righteousness, done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. That way all the glory goes to him. And we're filled just with love and gratitude for him. So if you haven't done so yet, I would just pray that you would acknowledge your sins before God and put your trust in his son, Jesus Christ, to save you by his grace, even this morning. And he will do that. And then be baptized and join a local church and learn what it means to become a follower of Jesus. Well, in conclusion, this morning we've been reminded from Joshua 4 of how important it is for, people, for the people of God to remember his mighty acts of salvation. And I just pray that God will use this chapter of Scripture to impress upon you a fresh 
as Christians, the importance of remembering what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, that we might love him, that we might fear him forever. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you that you have given us your word to instruct us in the gospel and then to instruct us in what it means to live as your new covenant people. We thank you that your word both sings to us the good news of the gospel, of salvation by grace through simple faith apart from our works or merit. And it also stings, it convicts us of our sin, shows us where we need to confess our sin, receive forgiveness, and begin walking in obedience by the power of your Spirit. We pray that you do all of that through your word this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.